Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 12? We've been going through a series called uh, Doing the Christian Life Together, and we're in the uh, part nine of this 10-part series dealing with the issue of God and discipline. And these are things that are, uh, well, the word discipline is one that often creates some interesting emotional responses. So um, I'll let you wrestle with that for a moment. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage again? Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. The writer begins by saying, You have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, literally uh, meaning to point out a fault that is in you, because the Lord's disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father? And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask for the opening of Your Word to our hearts and our minds, that it might become a living Word, a Word that would live inside of us and would have authority over our lives to help us and strengthen us. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was probably the famed theologian uh, Carl F. Henry who described the God of the Bible as being the God who stands, stoops, and stays. What did he mean by that alliteration? Well, he said basically that God stands with us in our struggles. He stoops down to help us when we stumble. And He stays by our side even when we stray away. And He does all of this for one reason. He does it because He is our Father and we are His children. And this is also the great argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here in chapter 12 because God is our Father and as such He's committed to doing what a father does. He does a father's work and a father's work is in large part to lovingly discipline and train his children. As Paul said to the Ephesians, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. The book of Proverbs is, is, really, is really virtually a treasure trove of similar exhortations. For example, in Proverbs 13, 24, it says, If you refuse to discipline, literally to train your children, it proves that you don't love them. If you love your children, you will be prompt to discipline and to train them. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your sons, for that is, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. 
Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Literally point them in the right direction. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 15, he said, folly, literally foolishness or fad or the latest fashion is bound up, is attractive, in other words, to the heart of a child. But tough-minded discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you peace and he will bring delight to your soul. And on and on it goes in the book of Proverbs that one thing that should become abundantly clear to us when we look at Scripture is that God is really into discipline. In fact, in Revelation 3, 19, he said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. In fact, even the Great Commission commands us to go and make disciples. He says, then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Literally, a disciple is someone who is disciplined in the ways of his master. Go and discipline people in the ways of the master, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, there are some problems we have when we begin to think on the concept of God and discipline. And maybe the biggest problem is that discipline rarely, if ever, is fun. Say what you want, claim to be as disciplined as you will. The simple truth is that you and I are not great fans of discipline. Now, some of that is due to the fact that we grew up in environments where discipline didn't happen. Something else took place in the name of discipline. And we'll talk a little more about that in a moment. But the simple fact is that discipline is key to about everything that we want to accomplish in our life. In fact, the writer, as we just read here, told us in verse 11, he says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but faithful. In fact, it was Humphrey Bogart who once said a professional is someone who does their best when they don't feel like it. And most of us realize that this is really the thing that separates play from work. Play is often very demanding in terms of time, energy, and investment of yourself. If you're going to play well, you're going to play hard, but it becomes work the moment when you're exhausted and you can't quit. In fact, one retiree who, uh, uh, in fact, a very uh, successful executive, uh, looked forward to the time when he could finally work and dedicate him to his favorite hobby, which was golf. And yet he said, as he was explaining to someone uh, who he was working with in a part-time job, that he didn't take the job because he needed the money, but rather he needed the diversion. Because he said, when after, by the third day of playing golf all day, I realized golf had become my new job. In other words, you begin to put yourself in anything, and it takes a lot of energy. But here's the thing that we realize, that as soon as we can't just do it when we want and quit when we want, it suddenly becomes hard and requires a discipline, the kind of discipline that says you want to quit, but you can't. You want to quit, but you can't. It's kind of like going out and cutting wood on a cold morning. You want to be warm, but you don't want to have to cut the wood. It's just, you just realize this is something that you have to do if you're going to fight off the cold. 
What makes discipline hard? Now, this is profound. You may want to write this down. What makes discipline hard is the fact that it's hard. It isn't something that just kind of naturally percolates to the surface. You don't find children coming out of the womb saying, where's my schedule? You know, where's my list of to-dos? Where's the regulations of my life? In fact, we find that what makes child-raising kids so difficult is as they mature, they begin to push against the disciplines. If they would just cooperate... Is there a child who ever simply comes out in the morning and says, Mom, don't worry, I've already done my own laundry and made my bed? It doesn't happen. In fact, my kids, when they made the bed, you went to look and say, what's really going on here? And you usually found that there was something like a stray puppy buried in there someplace because it just wasn't normal for them to simply be so organized and so on the task. And that's why we as parents have these classic phrases like, how many times do I have to tell you? And just fill in the blank because it's something that you have to repeatedly bring up and force upon them. And never once do they look at you and say, I rise up and call you blessed mother. (laughs) You know, it, it just doesn't happen because being disciplined is hard. Now, what maturity causes you to recognize is that If you're ever going to succeed at anything, if you're ever going to be good at anything, if you're ever going to accomplish anything that matters, it takes hard work based upon the idea of discipline, that I just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. So that when you find people have a level of expertise, what we know today is they invested 10,000 hours on becoming competent at some task, and that's what makes them an expert. Across the board, it doesn't matter what it is. Whatever you decide that you're going to invest that time of, type of time, money, and energy in is a thing that you're going to develop a degree of expertise in. And they even find it has nothing to do with a level of intelligence, your IQ, or any of those kind of things that we think are the predisposers to success. We think some people just kind of stumbled into it and got lucky, but the fact of the matter is they repeatedly confronted the same challenge, failing at it more often than succeeding till eventually they became good at it. So that anybody that you look who has a a level of significant competence is somebody who has invested themselves to a great extent. So when we talk about the spiritual life or when we decry the lack of spiritual depth in our culture, where do you think the culprit lies? Where is really the, the source of the problem? And I know for a fact it's because most of us want a experience of God that doesn't require the hard work of discipline. We want it to fall into our lap. In fact, there's almost a theology within Western Christianity that implies that once you get saved, it's just glide and abide. It's just going with the flow. But here's the problem with going with the flow. As Chuck Smith used to say, he said that his mother often told him when he was growing up, as he would complain that she wouldn't let him do certain things that everybody else was getting to do. Ever heard that one, mom and dad? You know, I remember my seven-year-old granddaughter saying to her mom, everybody in my class has a cell phone. (laughs) 
which was a bold-faced lie, but nonetheless. <laughs> but you hear this thing, and he said she would look at him and say, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. And we all know that to be true, that any fish that's going with the stream probably is doing it belly up, not head forward. And we need to recognize that this is the nature of the world in which we live, and it's not a different dynamic when it comes to the life of the Spirit. We get so confused because we don't want to be justified by our works. But at the same time, James made it very clear, but if you don't have works, then you don't have faith because faith is the thing that compels you to move in a particular direction. And we live in a world that is a sinful world that has evil powers that are present who are always in resistance. In a sense, we're always going against a headwind of spiritual opposition so that when we decide that we are going to live our lives in a way that matters for God, you're going to find there's a current that you're going to have to fight. There's a headwind that you're going to have to go against. That when you pray, you're not suddenly going to find that it's the day of Pentecost again and you're filled with the Spirit shouting in tongues with fiery wet things hanging over your head. But instead, you're going to find that you labor in prayer. And there are times when you labor in the Scriptures and you labor in travail over issues and situations and circumstances. And God often calls you, as Paul put it, in season and out of season. In other words, he said there are some times when God challenges you to step out in faith when it is easy to do so, and there are other times when it is the hardest thing in the world. There are some people who are going to be easy to love. There are going to be those other people. And that's the nature of it. And what is the thing that is, becomes the, the overriding factor? Well, I would love to say in truth that it's the Holy Spirit. But what is the Holy Spirit doing at those moments? He is often saying, step out in faith before you feel the power. Trust me, even though you can't see a reason for it right now. And we find it's a discipline of the Spirit that teaches us to take that seriously. It's that learning experience. We learn from not doing it and seeing the consequences and being disappointed. We also learn it by saying, okay, I'm going to try it this time and stepping out with God and experiencing that as we step out, God steps in. But that's why we find that the writer says to us here, endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardships as discipline. Now, I don't know how many of you have thought of it. This suddenly occurred to me as I was doing my devotional time and freezing my tail off. And I'm bundled up in all this stuff trying to read my Bible. And suddenly it hit me that having no electricity was God's will for my life in this moment having no heat, none of those other comfortable things, not being able to get on the internet and, and feel like I'm connected to the wild world out there. None of those things that you just kind of take for granted there. And there was a hardship that you began to experience in going, God, this was intended by you as well. This came from your hand. And how do I know that? Because of the ugly things I saw coming out of my heart 
where are those repair crews? What are they doing? Why does that guy down the road have electricity and I don't have electricity? If there's a God in heaven who is fair, and you, you start going to those places, right? Am I the only one here, or are you guys going to give me some help? Okay? <laughs> if we're going to confess now, let's just let's be honest, okay? And you go through all those things as I'm watching the president of a Vista explaining, wearing his casual shirt to make us feel like he's connecting. And as I'm listening to him, I'm thinking to myself, where are you? My next-door neighbor works for Vista. He's putting in 12, 14-hour days, so, I mean, I do know where he is. But we're told also by Timothy, by Paul writing to Timothy, he said, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Why is our American military the best in the world? Right? Why are they so competent? Well, we talk about technology, but more than technology, it's training. It's the fact that they are disciplined and they are trained harder and more intensely, and therefore they become more competent. They learn how to endure hardships, to fight through often the pain and the discomfort and even the fear. And Paul said, we need to understand our Christianity from that perspective, that we're called to not simply flow where it's the easiest always to go, but rather to bring ourselves under a spiritual discipline in our life where we endure hardships and difficulties as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And this is a strange message because we live in a convenience culture. We live in a cut-and-run world. We live in a world when the going gets tough, people just go. They don't hang in there. They do it with marriages. They do it with the families. They do it with their jobs. They do it across the board. It's all about how does it conform to my comfort zone that there's a level of skepticism that has become a level of cynicism that simply we don't become people who are simply trying to create our own circle or even our own community, but we're trying to recreate our own world that conforms to us and us alone. And the problem is that God never intended us to live in a world like that. When he says, you are salt and you are light, he immediately implied that we are going to have a distinctive that makes us always living in a foreign context. When he says, you're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he's called us out of the world, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world, that we're always people who are never quite comfortably positioned because we don't fit into that culture. And let me tell you, there is a side of us that always wants to meld with the warmest climate we can. The Bible talked about the, the lukewarmness that is most comfortable. And yet Jesus says, but unless you're hot for me, you'll never really stand out from the crowd. We struggle with discipline because we often confuse it with punishment. So that when the electricity goes off and you think, okay, well, I can endure this. And then the temperature drops and you think, oh, well, I can do this for a little while. But then the days go on. When I find myself going to bed wearing socks, you know it's cold. 
I usually don't even wear a shirt. And I'm, it's just like, oh my goodness, I'm freezing. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, like you, going through this whole thing. And the question in your mind is, God, why are you doing this to me? Don't you love me? And what that kind of thinking brings to the surface when we go through hardship moments, I don't, that's a silly illustration of a temporary discomfort, except for those of you who are still in that discomfort. But excuse me, but the simple fact is we have events in our life where we begin to say, why are you doing this? And what lies behind that is the belief that God is not in control or God is against us. That God is punishing us. And as long as we have that perspective, we miss school. We're out of class. We're not in a learning mode. We're not looking at our situation saying, okay, God, what is it that I'm supposed to derive from what's happening right now in my life? And it's quite possible for you and I to become stuck in that place and not go forward because we keep on feeling sorry for ourselves and pitying ourselves and acting as if, if God loved me, He wouldn't let this touch my world. Let me tell you, because God loves you, He lets a lot of things touch your world because He wants to display His power and His grace and His victory even in those places in your life where you think God isn't present or doesn't care or doesn't maybe even have the power to change. There's such a difference between discipline and, and punishment. And, and, and let, me, let me grit it out for you this way. Discipline is always constructive. It's seeking to build something in a person's life. Punishment is destructive. The very intention of a penal system isn't to reform criminals. It's to lock them away. So that we have to understand that when, when somebody says, well, I'm going to punish you or discipline you, and then it becomes punishment, what it does is it destroys rather than builds up. That's why Paul said, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate them with either lack of attention or severity, but build into their lives. Construct something that they can use for guidance in their life. The discipline is selfless. It's not thinking about how I can satisfy myself, but on the other hand, punishment is very selfish. I'll show you. It, it really has behind it not thirdly a corrective approach, but rather a vengeful approach. I'm going to get even to you. How dare you do this to me? I remember a father saying to me one time, my children don't have the right to embarrass me. And I said, well, they may not have the right, but they certainly have the power, and they'll use it. I mean, <laughs> sometimes we say some of the weirdest stuff, you know. I mean, I guarantee it. The discipline is something that makes us wiser, whereas punishment makes us sad. In fact, it makes, especially children, they become uncertain. Because what discipline does, it promotes change, but you see, punishment promotes fear. Discipline is motivated by love, but punishment is motivated by, by uh, anger, maybe even hatred. And discipline is predictable. 
It always reacts in a consistent, reliable manner, whereas punishment is unpredictable. You never know what's coming next. And let me tell you, that makes you fearful. I say that because I grew up with that. I grew up with that. And so you begin to realize that that these things undermine, punishment undermines the very nature and character of a person so that they go through life without confidence, without clarity, with even a state of fearful confusion, never quite knowing where the center is, whereas discipline has the opposite. It takes you in a specific direction and you understand that something is being formed in you. It may surprise you that even Jesus went through His Father's discipline. At least that's what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews 5, 8 he, through 10, he said, Though He was a son, He learned trusting obedience by what He suffered just as we do. He learned it. So that the, that human side of Jesus that we tend to diminish, we almost want to make Jesus half man, half God when He was fully man and fully God. And please don't ask me to explain how that works. It's kind of a God thing. But the simple fact was that humanity in Him had to be disciplined and trained by the Spirit of God in the ways of His Father so that He learned this life of obedience in the same manner in which you and I At least God desires to help us learn that obedience in our life. But how does God practically do that? There are really, I think, three paths or three ways in which God brings discipline into the life of His children. And and the first way is what I simply refer to as self-discipline. The best discipline is a discipline that you can do on your own that God can teach you. And that's really what God wants. He wants you to develop a disciplined life through what you encounter through yourself. For the biggest thing is to simply stay in the Word of God. When David says in Psalm 119, in verse 9, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers his question, by living according to your Word He says, I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. And then in verse 15, he adds, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways, and I delight in your decrees, and I will not neglect your word. I've never known anybody who, well, I take that back. I've never known many people who uh, habitually neglect food. I think most of us are kind of on the other side of that scale, you know. We understand that uh, not only do we be nourished, but we understand that there is a wonderful pleasure in eating food. And please don't make anybody feel guilty about that. Food is made to taste good so that you'll eat it and enjoy it. It's one of the great places of fellowship. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, for Thanksgiving, right? But the whole point is that none of us would just, without thinking about it, say, I'm not going to eat for a while. I just don't want to be bothered. Most of us are saying, bother me, please, often, you know. When my wife says, would you like something I just baked? She never, I never have to say, would you come back later when I'm really not quite so busy? I drop everything. <laughs> you know, palate is king. 
You know, it's, it's, it's one of those di- dynamics. And what David says is, I came to realize that your word was essential to my very sustenance. And what happens when you just sit down and just read his word? It doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be life-changing. But in the reality, it becomes life-changing. It becomes life-changing. I'll never forget on one of my trips to India, and I'm, you know, in, in between airports. I had four hours before my flight, and uh, there was only one thing to do. That was to read my Bible. And I spent four hours reading my Bible and had this very powerful experience. And if you would have sat back and said to me, so what did God show you as you read the Word? I would have been at a loss because I said, you know, nothing really stands out, but something transpired as if I had been nourished in my soul to the place where I was so full, which I needed because I spent the next 12 days teaching 26 different times. So I had spent days just pouring out, and as if God's saying, I want to fill you to the place where your soul is overflowing so that you'll have something to give and you won't be running on empty spiritually all the time. Many of us find ourselves in situations that we're not prepared to deal with because we're running on empty. We don't nourish our souls with His Word. But when you begin to just simply develop a discipline and you have to develop it in your own life that simply says, I'm going to make time for God and His Word every day so that God's Word becomes the major input into your life. It not only changes your thinking, it changes your behavior and your reactions and it opens up the door for God's grace to work in and through your life in new ways that you had never imagined. In fact, Paul told Timothy why it was that way. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. So that when I read it, God is breathing into me the the breath of life. Do many of you feel like you go through life with somebody standing on your air hose? Isn't it surprising when you look down and realize it's your foot? You know, it's just taking your foot off the hose and suddenly you go, oh, oh. God says, when you read my word, I breathe life into you. It's not often what we want to breathe because it's useful for teaching, he said, but also for rebuking you. Ouch. It's when God points out something that needs to change in your life. He says it's, it's great for correcting so that you recognize this is not a right attitude. It's great for training in righteousness so that I begin to know how to behave and to respond. I become expert, an expertise in living a righteous life. But he says, so that the man of God and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, I cannot be equipped for doing God's good works in this world if I am ignorant of what he says and I don't know his truth. He's not talking about becoming theologians or scholars, but he's talking about people who have simply breathed in the rarefied air of God's Spirit into their soul so that it has a transforming effect upon their life. That they breathe it in and then they're able to breathe it out into the world in which they come in contact. One of the little adages that I was given when I first got saved, and it stuck with me ever since, I remember being told as I've given my Bible, and they said, sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. 
At the time, I thought it was profound, and then as I began to become more sophisticated, I thought it was kind of trite. And now that I'm old, I look at it and go, it's absolute truth. It's absolute truth. That there are some things that I suffered in my life because I was ignorant of God's truth. I just didn't know better. Worse yet, there are things you suffer in your life because you just simply didn't listen to what God had to say. So there are those who are always wandering around saying, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. And let me tell you, it's right here. <laughs> it's right here in, in copious detail. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't need a prophet to come to you and say, thus saith the Lord, you suck. You don't need any of that stuff. What you need is for the Word of God to bring its training and its teaching and its correcting, its encouragement to give you passions. And I can just simply say for my own life, there are junctures that I've come to where I've really wrestled with my own identity as a follower of Jesus. And suddenly right there in the text, God speaks to my heart and clarifies all that. And the cloud goes away. And simply you have a passage of Scripture that becomes the path for the next season in your journey to follow Jesus. But many people wander aimlessly, bumping against walls and other hard objects and injuring themselves simply because they don't have any sense of where God is taking them. God is taking you someplace. Oh, I don't mean geographically. You won't find it on a map, but you will find it as a destination that you are heading towards within the will of God for your life. Now, if it was enough for me to just spend time by myself and, and, and develop all the disciplines of the Spirit, that would be fine enough. But there's an added dimension that we've talked about already, but I want to revisit. And that's the uh, discipline that comes from community. You see, the Christian life, as we've talked about in the past, is meant to be lived within the context of other believers. And when we don't allow other believers into the context of our life, we tend not to grow as, as quickly or as deeply. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because as Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. It matters because other people bring irritation into my life quite simply. As I said last week, they rub me in the wrong way exactly the way I need to be rubbed. That I never would believe that I was a loveless man until I was challenged to love somebody who was unlovable, at least by my estimation. I was never believed that I had a, had, a, had a possibility of being unkind until I found myself challenged to show kindness to somebody who has not reciprocated or to be merciful to someone who is harsh and unforgiving. All those dynamics never really come to the center of your life until you are challenged in specific ways to do it. And that has to happen in the community of other people, particularly in the community of other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. That those other people, secondly, are not only there to irritate me, they are also there to correct me. They are people who care enough to confront me. Proverbs 27, 6, Solomon said, the wounds from a friend can be trusted. Why? I love the way the New English Translation uh, commentary put it. It said, because they are meant to correct and not destroy. 
that when a friend comes and says, you know, I, something i got to talk to you about. That's painful, isn't it? It's so painful that most of us chicken out and don't do it. But when somebody loves you enough to sit down and say, listen, because I love you, here's what I need to tell you. We need that in our life. We need to give people permission to do that in our life. And I don't mean just anybody who happens to walk by because, granted, there are some unsafe people out there. In fact, it's what somebody once referred to as well-intentioned dragons. They mean well, but they'll singe every hair on your body. No, I, I mean people that you've developed that depth of relationship where you feel they're safe. And when they're speaking to you, even if they're not right, they're saying it out of love. I'm not saying that everybody who comes to you and confronts you with an issue is accurate. They're giving you their perspective. They're seeing the situation from their corner of the world. But on the other hand, they may be absolutely correct. At the very least, it may be something that's hindering your relationship with them or their relationship with you. And we need that corrective in our life. We need to allow people who we trust and who we know are safe to speak things that we may not want to hear to sit back and say, only whisper to me pleasant things that will make me smile is immature and will keep us that way. The thirdly, it's in within community that God says His profoundest revelation of Himself is found. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. He doesn't say that wherever you go, I will always reveal myself. The, the phrasing in the original is really interesting because he says there's an awareness suddenly of me being there. That when we come together mutually submitted to his authority over our life, which is what his name means, that there is a manifestation of God that is unique in the context of us that I will not necessarily experience in the context of me alone. And so God desires to reveal Himself. How many of us have come into a setting like this without any sense of God's divine presence or revelation and suddenly we find in a song or in a phrase or in a word or a sentence in a message or even a conversation before or after or in between, God speaks to us and our eyes are open and we just go, oh my gosh, God is in this place. You see, God wants to use other people. 90% of winning, someone once said, is just showing up. We find the first church made it their habit to show up. Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Uh, Peterson puts it, day after day they regularly assembled. They just made community an essential part of who they were. That's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts the Hebrew Christians. He says, let us not give up meeting together. Literally, that phrase means gathering together in one place. As some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And literally, that, that encourage, the word that's used there means to strengthen, to exhort, to comfort, to instruct to teach. Let us come together for the good that we can invest in one another's life by this gathering together. Do you have that circle? 
in a way, when he's saying, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, you're here. Could you go share that with the one who didn't show up? But simply, we, we, we often view the Christian community as an optional dynamic in our life when God says it is the central expression of what it means to truly be a Christian. The central expression, because He said, men will know you are my disciples. Why? By your love for one another. That as you begin to interact with this group of people right here and you find yourself getting to know them and then learning how to love them because now you know them, is where Christ becomes most manifest in the world in which we live. More so than if we're on the street sharing the gospel and preaching the message. No, where it really happens is in those closed quarters of Christian community And we really get to know each other and we can say of one another, I fully know you and I fully love you because every one of us yearns for those two things more than just about anything else. It's to be fully known and to be fully loved. And that begins with our discovery that God fully knows everything about me. He knows things about me that I won't even admit to myself, but He loves me without reservation. And he says, if you're my disciple, you'll follow me. And so we are challenged to learn to fully know somebody and to fully love them. I think that's what marriage is all about. It was easy for my wife to love me when she didn't know who I was. Just thinking she knew who I was. And then she got to live with me 24-7 and discover who I was. There was the challenge to love. And it's the same for all of us. But brings me to the final thing I want to touch on. So that when we talk about discipline, we talked about self-discipline, we talked about community discipline, a part of the church, but part of that also is the thing called church discipline. You see, every admonition about dealing with disorder in the church, is intended to create restoration, not to lead to exclusion. But there comes a point where there needs to be a corrective surgery, where you have to cut something out because it's harmful, whether it be on a personal level or even on a community level. In Matthew 5.29, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. Why? Because it's better for you to lose one eye than your body, the whole body be thrown into hell. He, he doesn't mean that literally. Usually most people can stop looking at things they shouldn't if the option is have your eye gouged, gouged out. But he's trying to talk about the severity of there are some things that are toxic to us. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you will also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The context is that it is a burden for you or me to have to go to somebody who is living disorderly, living outside of the the will of God. It's not fun doing that. If you enjoy that, you scare me because it's not fun to have to go and confront somebody and say, look, I see this and I'm concerned about it. But that's why Paul says, if you do it, do it with gentleness. 
It's like I've had surgery a few times, and one of the things I check when, when I first meet the surgeon is how steady his hand is. If the guy's going like this, I'm sorry, you're not my guy. Oh, see, this one's fine. <laughs> yeah, but you're right-handed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not a comforting thing. He says, do it gently because you can do jam damage. We need to understand it. Some of you are on the other stream. You're saying, well, I just tell people the way it is. I just lay the truth right out. They got to deal with the truth. And please, that's trying to like doing cataract surgery with a caterpillar. You know, it's just, it's not going to be a good thing. No, restore them gently. But there are situations where that doesn't work. In fact, that's where he basically says that if you can't just cut something out, sometimes you have to quarantine someone. And there are reasons that he gives for this. He talks about essentially uh, it, when, when a person is confronted with sin in their life and they remain wholly unrepentant. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have, put out, and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Now, here was a man who was having basically a physical relationship with his stepmother. And he just said, even the, even the pagans look at that as being sick and wrong. Of course, they didn't live in the 21st century, but nonetheless, they even understood that it was sick and wrong. But he says, if he won't repent, then you can't allow this to exist. What you're covering it up was an idea, well, we need to love everybody. He said, that's not love. No more than it's a parent who has a 14-year-old who comes to him and says, Dad, can I have the keys to the car? Well, you don't have a driver's license. You're not old, old enough. But if you love me, you'll give me the keys to the car. Okay. We would look at that person saying, that's pathetic. And yet sometimes in the church, we just want to overlook it. Why? Because having those kind of conversations are not fun. They're not pleasant. And they oftentimes get flashback that you don't want. Don't mess up my, my environment by polluting it with your anger. That's why he went on, to, he said, and goes on in verse 11, that same chapter, he says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler, with such a man do not even eat. Now, on some level, we're all guilty of all of that. But the difference is, is when God brings it to your awareness, when it is, we're confronted by those issues and they become life-defining if sexual immorality defines your lifestyle, if being greedy defines how you live life and do business, if being an idolater, worshiping the things of this world defines who you are, if slander defines who you are, if drunkenness defines who you are, if being a dishonest business person, swindling others defines who you are, and you call yourself a brother, he says, confront it. Call them to repentance. If they will not repent, then put them out of the church. But he even includes those who, he goes on to say, not only have unrepentant immorality, but who cause division, dissension, and strife. 
And by that phrasing, he doesn't mean merely somebody has a different opinion or a different ministry style or even a minor doctrinal disagreement. Sometimes we, we major on the minors. But he's, causing, he's talking about someone who actually causes this disruption of fellowship. In Romans 16, 7, he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Again, in Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once, then warm him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him. So how do you define a, a divisive person? Well, it's interesting. The answer really comes in what we call biblical due process. How do we, what are the steps that we're supposed to take in dealing with someone who is unrepentant for immorality or who is divisive and, and causing strife within the community? He gives it in Matthew 18. He says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. He didn't say go and share it with your three best friends, talk about it, harumph on it for a while, and then decide, okay, somebody ought to say something. Okay, I guess I will. I'll send him a note and I won't sign it. No. You, if you've been offended, you go to them privately because the idea isn't to expose other people the idea is to restore people who have drifted from, from center stage, who have gotten off base. They, they, they've drifted to the left, to the right. How can I restore them with the least amount of shame, embarrassment, or fault possible? Because he goes on to explain, if, you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It doesn't have to be two or three people who necessarily have observed what you've observed, but can sit there and mediate between the two of you and really render true judgment. Because I find in most disagreements, it's not that one party's right and the other's wrong, it's usually that both are wrong and both are right in various ways. But he says, let it be something that will restore fellowship. Again, the restoration of fellowship, the restoration of community. But then finally he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You know what's tragic to me? I, can't, I probably count in one hand the times I've seen that process followed in a church in this country. Probably could count on one hand. Maybe, maybe I could take a few fingers off, reduce my digits. I mean, it, it, we don't do that. We just don't do it. We, first of all, don't go to the one. We don't go with two or three. And usually we just, you know, I call it the bounce and blab dynamic. We just bounce and then we blab. But how many times do we find the church doing this? Let me ask you this personally. How many times have you followed this format? Enough meddling. Let me close with simply one of Paul's own illustrations. I read about the man who was having uh, a relationship with his stepmother and Paul's 
And his instruction to them was, kick this guy out of the church. In fact, his phrasing is really good. I love the King James. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, that's gnarly. <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying if he wants to follow the spirit of evil, he wants to follow the demons of darkness, then let him be completely removed from the covering of grace that the church provides. Because God is going to cover His church with grace, and if He is in your midst, He is not being exposed to the full force of His or her choices. Put Him out of the church. Let Him come under the judgment of the one who He's choosing to serve. If He wants to follow Satan, let Him discover what following Satan really is like. Why? So that He might sorrow to repentance. When we get to 2 Corinthians, we find it worked. In fact, Paul goes on to say, he says, For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. In other words, I was speaking the truth to you in love. I know you didn't want to deal with it, but it had to be dealt with. If you love God, if you love your brother, you'll do this stuff. So I'm telling you, you have to do it. I'm holding you accountable for doing it. And then he went on to say, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, in other words, he repented. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, shame, grief, guilt. I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love for him. The objective in church discipline is to mature you. The objective in church discipline is to free you from things that can be destructive. But the objective, most of all, is to restore you into right relationship with God and with other people. I save this message towards the end because this is where it gets heavy. You want to talk about the heavy lifting of the Christian life? This is the heavy lifting. This is not the glide and abide stuff. There is nothing that you will engage in as a Christian that requires more of you than having to confront sin in each other. But to do it graciously and lovingly, as Paul said, consider yourself. Look in the mirror and realize, why do I see this weakness in that person? It's because I recognize it in myself. The failure to take that step is probably the biggest problem we have because we see something in somebody and we go after them like, like, a, like a cougar chasing after a buffalo. I mean, it's just, there's no mercy at all. But when we step and we look back and go, why do I recognize that in that person? And we suddenly come to this realization because I see this in myself. And I remember how it d damaged me and it hurt me and it weakened me and it kept me from God's joy and grace and strength. That suddenly we are motivated to go to someone else and say, you know, I, I love you, and because I love you, I just got to say this, and if I'm wrong, forgive me, and if I'm off base and I'm not seeing it correctly, then I'm sorry, but I, but I need to say what I, what I feel, and, and when somebody does that to you, you need to listen to what they're saying instead of saying, oh, well, you have a lot of right, what, you, you, what about you, you know, it's that something I learned when I was a kid. I know you are, but what am I? I am rubber, you are in glue. What bounces off me sticks on you. When the truth of the matter is that 
Even if we can't see it, we go away and say, let me really seek God about that because maybe you're speaking something that I don't even see in my life. But that's where Paul said, I want to be the helper of my brother's joy. I want to be the helper of my brother's joy. And saying that we love God will never really be manifested in a tangible way until we start becoming willing to do the heavy lifting of the Christian life. And this is, this is pretty heavy. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear. That I, I know, Lord, that there's a tremendous vulnerability in my communicating these things because what I say and what people hear may not be on the same page. But I know that your Holy Spirit can guide us into all truth. And I pray that your Spirit would speak into every one of our hearts and minds and direct us in a way that we could become redemptive people. That we would be committed to not just simply being truth detectors in other people's lives, but rather focus on how can I build up and restore and encourage others to go in Christ? How can I deal with problems with, with in, in terms of biblical due process? I pray, God, that we wouldn't be the bounce and blab community. We'd be the people who are committed to one another, even as you're committed to us. God, that we would be a people marked by that kind of graciousness that kind of forgiveness that we would speak the truth in love I pray Father you'd help us to be people who are safe a place where each of us knows that we can be fully known and yet at the same time be fully loved instead of living in fear that people if they knew what I was really like who I really was if they knew my real issues, they'd have nothing to do with God, I pray that we would not be that place. We could be a place, Lord, that anybody could come out of any closet they're hiding in and know that they're going to be met by forgiveness and grace and love. And people who say, I, I understand your struggle because we're all men and women of like passions. God, I pray that you just do that deep, transforming work in us. By your spirit, in Jesus' holy name we pray.